Section 53 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lawrence Trask, InterfaceAudio.com, Mount Vernon, Ohio. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 3. Progress of Scientific Chemistry in France. Part 10. Fourcroix, being thus entitled to practice in Paris, his success depended entirely on the reputation which he could contrive to establish. For this purpose he devoted himself to the sciences connected with medicine, as the shortest and most certain road by which he could reach his object. His first writing showed no predilection for any particular branch of science. He wrote upon chemistry, anatomy, and natural history. He published an abridgment of the history of insects, and a description of the bursa mucosa of the tendons. This last piece seems to have given him the greatest celebrity, for in 1785 he was admitted, in consequence of it, into the academy as an anatomist. But the reputation of Buquet, at this time very high, gradually drew his particular attention to chemistry and he retained this predilection during the rest of his life. Buquet was at that time professor of chemistry in the medical school of Paris, and was greatly celebrated and followed on account of his eloquence and the elegance of his language. Fourcroix became in the first place his pupil, and afterwards his particular friend. One day, when a sudden attack of disease prevented him from lecturing as usual, he entreated Fourcroix to supply his place. Our young chemist at first declined, and alleged his ignorance of the method of addressing a public audience. But overcome by the persuasions of Buquet, he at last consented, and in this, his first essay, he spoke two hours without disorder or hesitation, and acquitted himself to the satisfaction of his whole audience. Buquet soon after substituted him in his place, and it was in his laboratory and in his classroom that he first made himself acquainted with chemistry. He was enabled at the death of Buquet, in consequence of an advantageous marriage that he had made, to purchase the apparatus and cabinet of his master. And although the faculty of medicine would not allow him to succeed to the chair of Buquet, they could not prevent him from succeeding to his reputation. There was a kind of college which had been established in the Jardin du Roi, which at that time was under the superintendence of Buffon, and Marquer was the professor of chemistry in this institution. On the death of this chemist in 1784, both Berthollet and Fourcroix offered themselves as candidates for the vacant chair. The voice of the public was so loud in favor of Fourcroix that he was appointed to the situation in spite of the high character of his antagonist, and the political influence which was exerted in his favor. He filled this chair for twenty-five years, with a reputation for eloquence continually on the increase. Such were the crowds, both of men and women, who flocked to hear him, that it was twice necessary to enlarge the size of the lecture-room. After the Revolution had made some progress, he was named a member of the National Convention in the autumn of the memorable year 1793. 
It was during the reign of terror, when the convention itself, and with it all France, was under the absolute dominion of one of the most sanguinary monsters that ever existed. It was almost equally dangerous for the members of the convention to remain silent, or to take an active part in the business of that assembly. Fourcroix never opened his mouth in the convention till after the death of Robespierre. At this period he had influence enough to save the lives of some men of merit, among others of Darcet, who did not know the obligation under which he lay to him till long after. At last his own life was threatened, and his influence, of course, completely annihilated. It was during this unfortunate and disgraceful period that many eminent men lost their lives, among others Lavoisier, and Fourcroix is accused of having contributed to the death of this illustrious chemist. But Cuvier entirely acquits him of this atrocious charge, and assures us that it was urged against him merely out of envy at his subsequent elevation. If in rigorous researches which we have made, says Cuvier in his Elogie of Fourcroix, we had found the smallest proof of an atrocity so horrible, no human power could have induced us to sully our mouths with his Elogie, or to have pronounced it within the walls of this temple which ought to be no less sacred to honor than to genius. Fourcroix began to acquire influence only after the ninth Thermidor, when the nation was wearied with destruction, and when efforts were making to restore those monuments of science and those public institutions for education, which during the wantonness and folly of the revolution had been overturned and destroyed. Fourcroix began to acquire influence only after the ninth Thermidor, when the nation was wearied with destruction, and when efforts were making to restore those monuments of science, and those public institutions for education, which during the wantonness and folly of the revolution had been overturned and destroyed. Fourcroix was particularly active in this renovation, and it was to him chiefly that the schools established in France for the education of youth are to be ascribed. The convention had destroyed all the colleges, universities, and academies throughout France. The effects of this absurd abolition soon became visible. The army stood in need of surgeons and physicians, and there were none educated to supply the vacant places. Three new schools were founded for educating medical men. They were nobly endowed. The term schools of medicine was prescribed as too aristocratical. They were distinguished by the ridiculous appellation of schools of health. The polytechnic school was next instituted as a kind of preparation for the exercise of the military profession, where young men could be instructed in mathematics and natural philosophy to make them fit for entering the schools of the artillery, of engineers, and of the marine. The Central Schools was another institution for which France was indebted to the efforts of Fourcroix. The idea was good, though it was very imperfectly executed. It was to establish a kind of university in every department, for which the young men were to be prepared by a sufficient number of inferior schools scattered throughout the department. But unfortunately, these inferior schools were never properly established or endowed, and even the central schools themselves were never supplied with the proper masters.
Indeed, it was found impossible to furnish such a number of masters at once. On that account, an institution was established in Paris, called the Normal School, for the express purpose of educating a sufficient number of masters to supply the different central schools. Fourcroix, either as a member of the Convention or of the Council of the Ancients, took an active part in all these institutions, as far as regarded the plan and the establishment. He was equally concerned in the establishment of the Institute and of the Musée de Histoire Naturelle. This last was endowed with the utmost liberality, and Fourcroix was one of the first professors, as he was also in the School of Medicine and the Polytechnic School. He was equally concerned in the restoration of the university, which constituted one of the most useful parts of Bonaparte's reign. The violent exertions which he made in the numerous situations which he filled, and the prodigious activity which he displayed, gradually undermined his constitution. He himself was sensible of his approaching death, and announced it to his friends as an event which would speedily take place. On the 16th of December, 1809, after signing some dispatches, he suddenly cried out, Je suis mort, I am dead, and dropped lifeless on the ground. He was twice married, first to Mademoiselle Bettinger, by whom he had two children, a son and a daughter who survived him. He was married for the second time to Madame Belleville, the widow of Vi, by whom he had no family. He left but little fortune behind him, and two maiden sisters who lived with him, depended afterwards for their support on his friend, Monsieur Vacayin. Notwithstanding the vast quantity of papers which he published, it will be admitted without dispute that the prodigious reputation which he enjoyed during his lifetime was more owing to his eloquence than to his eminence as a chemist, though even as a chemist he was far above mediocrity. He must have possessed an uncommon facility of writing. Five successive editions of his system of chemistry appeared, each of them gradually increasing in size and value, the first being in two volumes and the last in ten. This last edition he wrote in sixteen months. It contains much valuable information, and doubtless contributed considerably to the general diffusion of chemical knowledge. Its style is perhaps too diffuse, and the spirit of generalizing from particular and often ill-authenticated facts is carried to a vicious length. Perhaps the best of all his productions is his philosophy of chemistry. It is remarkable for its conciseness, its perspicuity, and the neatness of its arrangement. Besides these works, and the periodical publication entitled La Médecine à Claire, of which he was the editor, there are above 160 papers on chemical subjects, with his name attached to them, which appeared in the Memoir of the Academy and of the Institute, and in the Annales de Chimie, or the Annales de Musée de Histoire Naturelle, of which last work he was the original projector. Many of these papers contain analysis, both animal, vegetable, and mineral, of very considerable value. In most of them, the name of Vacayin is associated with his own as the author, and the general opinion is that the experiments were all made by Vacayin, 
but that the papers themselves were drawn up by Fourcroix. It would serve little purpose to go over this long list of papers, because though they contributed essentially to the progress of chemistry, yet they exhibit but few of those striking discoveries which at once alter the face of the science by throwing a flood of light on everything around them. I shall merely notice a few of what I consider as his best papers. Number one. He ascertained that the most common biliary calculi are composed of a substance similar to spermaceti. This substance, in consequence of a subsequent discovery which he made during the removal of the dead bodies from the burial ground of the innocents at Paris, namely that these bodies are converted into a fatty matter he called adipocere, it has been since distinguished by the name of cholestine, and has been shown to possess properties different from those of adipocere and spermaceti. 2. It is to him that we are indebted for the first knowledge of the fact that the salts of magnesia and ammonia have the property of uniting together and forming double salts. 3. His dissertation on the sulfate of mercury contains some good observations. The same remark applies to his paper on the action of ammonia on the sulfate, nitrate, and muriate of mercury. He first discovered the double salts which are formed. 4. The analysis of urine would have been valuable had not almost all the facts contained in it been anticipated by a paper of Dr. Wollaston, published in the Philosophical Transactions. It is to him that we are indebted for almost all the additions to our knowledge of calculi, since the publication of Scheele's original paper on the subject. 5. I may mention the process of Fourcroix and Van Kellyn for obtaining pure barites by exposing nitrate of barites to a red heat as a good one. They discovered the existence of phosphate of magnesia in bones, of phosphorus in the brain and in the milts of fishes, and of a considerable quantity of saccharine matter in the bulb of the common onion, which by undergoing a kind of spontaneous fermentation was converted into manna. In these and many other similar discoveries, which I think it is unnecessary to notice, we do not know what fell to the share of Fourcroix and what to Vacayin, but there is one merit at least to which Fourcroix is certainly entitled, and it is no small one. He formed and brought forward Vacayin, and proved to him ever after a most steady and indefatigable friend. This is bestowing no small panegyric on his character, for it would have been impossible to have retained such a friend through all the horrors of the French Revolution, if his own qualities had not been such as to merit so steady an attachment. Louis Bernard Gaetan de Marvaux was born at Dion on the 4th of January, 1737. His father, Anthony Gaetan, was professor of civil law in the University of Dion and descended from an ancient and respectable family. At the age of seven, he showed an uncommon mechanical turn. Being with his father at a small village near Dion, he there happened to meet a public officer returning from a sale, whence he brought back a clock that had remained unsold on account of its very bad condition. Morveau supplicated his father to buy it. The purchase was made for six francs. Young Morveau took it to pieces and cleaned it, 
supplied some parts that were wanting, and put it up again without any assistance. In 1799 this very clock was resold at a higher price, together with the estate and the house in which it had been originally placed, having during the whole of that time continued to go in the most satisfactory manner. When only eight years of age he took his mother's watch to pieces, cleaned it, and put it up again, to the satisfaction of all parties. After finishing his preliminary studies in his father's house, he went to college and terminated his attendance on it at the age of sixteen. About this time he was instructed in botany by M. Michaud, a friend of his father, and a naturalist of some eminence. He now commenced law student in the University of Dijon, and after three years of intense application, he went to Paris to acquire a knowledge of the practice of the law. While in Paris, he not only attended to law, but cultivated at the same time several branches of political literature. In 1756, he paid a visit to Voltaire at Ferney. This seems to have inspired him with a love of poetry, particularly of the descriptive and satiric kind. About a year afterwards, when only twenty, he published a poem called Le Rat Iconoclast, O Le Jesuit Croquet. It was intended to throw ridicule on a well-known anecdote of the day, and to assist in blowing the fire that had already threatened destruction to the obnoxious order of Jesuits. The adventure alluded to was this. Some nuns who felt a strong predilection for a Jesuit, their spiritual director, were engaged in their accustomed Christmas occupation of modeling a representation of a religious mystery decorated with several small statues representing the holy personages connected with the subject and among them that of the ghostly father but to mark their favorite his statue was made of loaf sugar the following day was destined for the triumph of the jesuit but meanwhile a rat had devoured the valuable puppet the poem is written after the agreeable manner of the celebrated poem verver at the age of twenty-four he had already pleaded several important causes at the bar, when the office of Advocate General at the Parliament of Dijon was advertised for sale. At that time all public situations, however important, were sold to the best bidder. His father, having ascertained that this place would be acceptable to his son, purchased it for forty thousand francs. The reputation of the young advocate and his engaging manners facilitated the bargain. In 1764 he was admitted an honorary member of the Academy of Sciences, Arts, and Belles Lettres of Dijon. Two months after, he presented to the assembled chamber of the Parliament of Burgundy a memoir on public instruction with a plan for a college on the principles detailed in his work. The encomiums which every public journal of the time passed on this production, and the flattering letters which he received, were unequivocal proofs of its value. In this memoir he endeavored to prove that man is bad or good according to the education which he has received. This doctrine was contrary to the creed of Diderot, who affirmed in his essay on the life of Seneca that nature makes wicked persons, and that the best institutions cannot render them good. But this mischievous opinion was successfully refuted by Morveau in a letter to an anonymous friend. 
The exact sciences were so ill-taught and lamely cultivated at Dijon during the time of his university education that after his admission into the academy, his notions on mechanics and natural philosophy were scanty and inaccurate. Dr. Chardonnay was in the habit of reading memoirs on chemical subjects, and on one occasion Morveau thought it necessary to hazard some remarks which were ill-received by the doctor, who sneeringly told him that having obtained such success in literature, he had better rest satisfied with the reputation so justly acquired, and leave chemistry to those who knew more of the matter. Provoked at this violent remark, he resolved upon taking an honorable revenge. He therefore applied himself to the study of Marquer's theoretical and practical chemistry, and of the manual of chemistry which Baumet had just published. To the last chemist he also sent an extensive order for chemical preparations and utensils, with a view of forming a small laboratory near his office. He began by repeating many of Baumet's experiments and then trying his inexperienced hand at original researches. He soon found himself strong enough to attack the doctor. The latter had just been reading a memoir on the analysis of different kinds of oil, and Morveau combated some of his opinions with so much skill and sagacity as astonished everyone present. After the meeting, Dr. Chardonnay addressed him thus, "'You are born to be an honor to chemistry.' So much knowledge could only have been gained by genius united with perseverance. Follow your new pursuit, and confer with me in your difficulties. But this new pursuit did not prevent Morveau from continuing to cultivate literature with success. He wrote an elegy of Charles V of France, surnamed The Wise, which had been given out as the subject of a prize by the Academy. A few months afterwards, at the opening of the session of Parliament, he delivered a discourse on the actual state of jurisprudence, on which subject, three years after, he composed a more extensive and complete work. No code of laws demanded reform more urgently than those of France, and none saw more clearly the necessity of such a reformation. About this time a young gentleman of Dion had taken into his house an adept, who offered, upon being furnished with the requisite materials, to produce gold in abundance. But after six months of expensive and tedious operations, during which period the roguish pretender had secretly distilled many oils, etc., which he disposed of for his own profit, the gentleman, beginning to doubt the sincerity of his instructor, dismissed him from his service, and sold the whole of his apparatus and materials to Morveau for a trifling sum. Soon after he repaired to Paris, to visit the scientific establishments of that metropolis, and to purchase preparations and apparatus which he still wanted to enable him to pursue with effect his favorite study. For this purpose he applied to Baumet, then one of the most conspicuous of the French chemists. Pleased with his ardour, Baumet inquired what courses of chemistry he had attended. None, was the answer. How, then, could you have learned to make experiments, and, above all, how could you have acquired the requisite dexterity? Practice, replied the young chemist, has been my master. Melted crucibles and broken retorts, my tutors. In that case, said Baumet, you have not learned, you have invented."
About this time, Dr. Chardonnay read a paper before the Dijon Academy on the causes of the augmentation of weight which metals experience when calcined. He combated the different explanations which had been already advanced, and then proceeded to show that it might be accounted for in a satisfactory manner by the abstraction of phlogiston. This drew the attention of Morveau to the subject. He made a set of experiments a few months afterwards, and read a paper on the phenomena of the air during combustion. It was soon after that he made a set of experiments on the time taken by different substances to absorb or emit a given quantity of heat. These experiments, if properly followed out, would have led to the discovery of specific heat, but in his hands they seem to have been unproductive. End of section 53. Recording by Lawrence Trask, interfaceaudio.com, Mount Vernon, Ohio.